Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Radio Crime Solvers. This is your host, John Hagedorn, and two episodes of the Raymond Chandler-inspired The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. Enjoy. Get this and get it straight. Crime is a sucker's road, and those who travel it wind up in the gutter of the prison of the grave. This time I tangled with a mad Scotchman, a phony English lord and a beautiful blonde corpse in a freight house, all because of a butler who walked on his knuckles. It happened like this. From the pen of Raymond Chandler, outstanding author of crime fiction, comes his most famous character in The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. Now, with Gerald Moore starred as Philip Marlowe, we bring you tonight's exciting story, The Monkey's Uncle. Hello. Mr. Philip Marlowe, please. It's very important. This is Marlowe. Oh, thank heavens you're still in your office at this late hour, Mr. Marlowe. I must have your help at once. What? Cornelius' life is in danger, man, and time means everything. Now, sir, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. Right Who way? are you? Who's Cornelius? Where are you calling from and about what? Let's have it a slow step at a time, huh? Aye. My name's Wesley Macduff, Mr. Marlowe. All right, lead on, Macduff. I'm calling from a telephone booth opposite the Beekman Plaza Hotel on Hollywood Boulevard where... Hmm? Ashley Duke... Ashley who? Going for the Bateman Plaza. Lord Ashley Duke himself, across the street. Now, wait a minute. I've got Let... to get to him. Mr. Marlowe, hurry. Meet me in the hotel lobby. Yes, but... Man, we've got to stop them. They're going to kill Cornelius. My first reaction was to forget the whole thing. But curiosity is strong stuff with me. Any triumvirate labeled Wesley McDuff, Lord Ashley Duke, and Cornelius had to add up the screwball no matter where you started. The word kill was still big in my vocabulary, so I buttoned the office up quickly, got down in my car, and drove over to the Beekman Plaza Hotel, where a ten-minute stand in the lobby produced nothing closer to worried Scotchman than the plaid covering in a sagging Morris chair. And at the reception desk, there was no Wesley McDuff registered or ever heard of. I'm sorry, sir. So at that, I was ready to call it quits. I turned for the door, but before I got there, I was stopped. The uniform said bellhop, and the sprinkle of freckles plus Bon Cowlick said all-American boy. But the shifty eyes and the narrow mouth that slid over to the side of his face when he talked said something else, like racetrack talk. Say, uh, pardon me, sir, but uh, I happened to overhear you ask after a Scotchman. Uh, Wesley Macduff, was it? Yeah, you know where he is? Well, uh, yes, and... Uh... Yes, and uh, how much? Ten? Five. Okay, sport five. Mm. But let's get out of the traffic, huh? Over here under this map, like I was pointing out something to you. That's a fresh idea, yeah. Thanks. Uh, the viva? Oh, here. Now, uh, where's McDuff? On his way to Burbank, dead drunk. You're crazy. I talked to him less than half an hour ago. He was stone sober and a long way from the party mood. Mm, could be. But 15 minutes ago, I helped Lord Ashley Duke pile him into a cab. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Ashley Duke, how does he fit? Uh, he found this McDuff in the alley outside. Oh. I was just coming back from dinner when I saw him pick the guy up. He couldn't say a word. Huh? But a Blue Shield medical card we found in his wallet read Wesley McDuff, 13 Vineland Avenue, Burbank. Boy, he was out colder than my old man. Yeah, yeah. I... Now listen, Junior. Here's another five. Fill me in fast. Who's Lord Ashley Duke? A nightclub character, entertainer. Lives here with his wife, uh, Lady Ashley Duke, when they're in L.A. Well, this um, is he legitimate? This Lord business? Nah, nah. But he plays it to the hilt. Why, after we piled that Macduff into the cab, he dusted his white gloves off, genteel like, <laughs> slipped the monocle he wears into his eye, and grabbed another cab and shoved. Mm. He's a phony. His real name is Bert Dukes, and Milady is Gert. And on her, it shows. What do you mean, shows? That the second she gets behind her door, uh, they got suite 312, she climbs out of her accent like it was a tight girdle. Uh. Especially when she and that niece of hers go at it. Uh, uh, yes, sir, the famous Merrimack cabins are on Route 66 near St. Louis. Oh, good evening, Mr. Fisher. Good evening, Tompkins. Okay, where were we? The niece, the niece. Oh, yeah, quite a doll. Her name's Merle Brimmer. Acts as a business manager, so she must also have brains. Now tell me, who's Cornelius? Cornelius? Yeah. <laughs> What's breaking you up? Who is he? Nobody but the star of the act. The Lord and Lady do a farce thing, uh, a takeoff on English drawing room stuff, and Cornelius plays the butler. Plays it in a derby and a boiled shirt, no less. Well, why the giggles? You've seen a derby and boiled shirt before? Yeah, yeah, sure I have. But on Cornelius, it looks different. You see, mister, he's a chimpanzee. <laughs> 
There, Cornelius definitely added screwball. But I also knew that prospective client Macduff had been sapped and piled into a cab for good riddance, which could add to less than funny. So I decided I'd look around a little longer, especially in the vicinity of Milady's chamber, number 312. When I stepped out of the elevator on the third floor, an owl-faced waiter was just piloting a dinner cart loaded down with dirty dishes out of the room. And when the cart joggled onto the corridor rug, it nearly upset a coffee pot, which left the waiter's mind on the juxtaposition of cart and pot and not the door. It he left open inches. I waited till he passed me. Then I moved up to where I could both see and hear Lady Ashley Duke and her niece Merle exploding at each other through an after-dinner conversation. The former was built like an upended blimp with as much charm as a mooring mast. The latter was blonde and female, spy beautiful. And also she was nonchalantly slipping a shiny 32 automatic from desk drawer to purse. Oh, now wait a minute, Gert. Before you snap a stay, you listen to me. Why? So you can explain once more how poor Uncle Bird's idiotic mistakes are just bad luck. Ten thousand bucks worth of bad luck. Nuts. Bird don't know anything about investments. He shouldn't be allowed to touch a red cent. And my pretty, from here on out, that's exactly the way it's going to be. Believe me. Oh, cut it, Gert, and quit blaming Uncle Bert and me. Are you kidding? Why shouldn't I blame the two of you? He's a jerk, and you... I never wanted you with us in the first place, my niece. <laughs> oh, shut up. And remember, dear aunt, your husband likes me around. I'm good for his morale, he says. He'll never let you fire me. So don't waste your breath. Auntie, get out of here. Go on, get down to the freight house and keep your eyes open. We don't want to lose Cornelius. Don't worry, darling. Guard duty's an old specialty of mine. Yes, who is it? Name's Marlowe. I'd like to see Lord Ashley Duke. Oh, well, I... Oh, well... Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> He's not in, but what did you want to see him about? Oh, uh, business. Can you help me? Perhaps. You see, I'm his uh, business... She used to be his business manager. She was just leaving, weren't you, Merle Darling? Yes, Merle Darling was. Mr. Marlowe, Lady Ashley Duke. Goodbye, Auntie. Unhappy, huh? Oh, rather. Uh, now, sir, to save each other's time, let me be blunt. Lord Ashley Duke is no longer interested in making any investments whatsoever, nor will he be interested at a future date. Is that clear, sir? Yes, like well water, Lady Ashley Duke, and if I were looking for an investor, I'd keep it in mind. But you see, I'm a private detective working for Wesley Macduff. A paper? A lousy paper pushing his way uh, in here. Why are you... Easy, easy, Gertie. Let go. Get your filthy hands off me. Sure. Just as soon as you get back in a neutral... I also want to save us time, and I want to save Cornelius, too. How do we talk or wrestle, which? Oh, all right. Seven weeks ago, Lord Ashley Duke and I bought Cornelius from that crazy monkey razor out in Burbank. We paid Macduff $30,000 for a run-down 17-year-old chimpanzee. Well, then why do you want to kill him? Macduff thinks you're going to. Yeah, Macduff's crazy. Just because we change our minds and instead of staying here in L.A., decide to go on the road. Macduff thinks Cornelius will catch cold and die. So he wants him back. Yeah, but you'll get your money back. Yeah. But what about the seven weeks of work just to teach him to drop a glass? Not only that, he's a wonderful imitator. I can see your point. Besides, a deal's a deal. And we're taking the risk of Cornelius' death, not the loon who runs that Burbank animal farm. Why, that Scotchman thinks every animal in the joint's related to him. <laughs> it's an old idea, honey. But look, Lady Ash... Ash what? We've had our talk, people. Now get out. Go on. Go on. Get out before I forget I'm, uh... A lady. Over here, Tompkins. What is it? A telephone call, sir. Booth four, this way, please. Make out all right up there? Jim Dandy. Good. Now, uh, if you feel I was underpaid... I you, feel we uh... came out even, Buster. Besides, I'm running low on farthings. Unless, uh... Yes? You know where the freight house Cornelius calls home is located. Uh-uh. Blank. Okay. So long, Tompkins. Hello. Mr. Morrow? Yeah. 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 You all right, Macduff? Hey, it takes more than a foul blow in the dark to stop me, man. And it's just what Lord Ashley Duke is going to discover in many minutes. What do you mean? That I've run out of patience. I ain't going to act, not talk. I'm about to take Cornelius back with my own hands, and I want you to help oh, me. Oh, now, wait a minute. Now, look, man. I'm in a drugstore at Pershing Square, close by the freight house where Cornelius is caged for shipment. I want you to but meet you me. But you can't steal him, Macduff. Ah, oh, I, I can. 
steal him and disguise the animal so they'll never be able to claim him again. So they won't be able to kill him. Macduff, I can't go along with that. Then I chose the wrong man. Oh. There's precious little time left, Mr. Marlowe. Tomorrow they leave Los Angeles. Now, will you help me? No. Beside Macduff, you'll never get away with it. There's a girl, Ashley Duke's niece, who's got a gun, and I... Macduff. Macduff! All the way from the phone booth through the lobby into my car outside, I kept telling myself three things. One, I wasn't working for Macduff. Two, Macduff was about to commit a crime. And three, I couldn't worry about the gun in Merle Brimmer's purse. It was all none of my business. So when I was in behind the wheel of my car, I pointed it toward my apartment on Franklin, lit a cigarette, and forgot about the whole thing. But a block later, I threw the cigarette out, turned, and headed for Pershing Square. Scots with animal farms in Burbank obviously weren't the only crazy people in Los Angeles. After arriving at Pershing Square, I was 30 minutes piling up wisecracks, frozen stairs, and assorted giggles before I hit pay dirt. A bottle boy with a great memory. Yeah, sure, I know the place. Only spot around, it'll ship live animals along with <clears throat> the rest of the stuff that they handle. Anything from an eel to an elephant. How about pink ones? They got those, too. That's what I thought. Yeah, I worked there once during, <clears throat> during the Christmas rush. Made the price of a fifth in one day. Now, I look, look, you'll do it again right now if you can tell me one thing. The address, what is it? It's, um, yeah. 44... Come on, come on. 42... Stick with it. Uh, yeah. Fourth Street. Yeah, <laughs> boy. <laughs> Here's five. Crawl back in the bottle. I'll see you. The neighborhood was half residential, half industrial, and all run down including the freight house, which was two windowless stories of dirty red brick hovering over a loading ramp on a deserted, shadowy street. I started slowly toward it when suddenly a side door flew open and an excited old man with flashlight and giant key ring that spelled Night Watchman leaped out of the building, arms and legs going like twin beaters on a mix master. Hey, hey, Pop! Hold it, is it the chimp? Yes, and he's raising the roof in there. Yeah? If I shoot him, I... I'll be fired. He's worth a fortune. Yeah, I know all about it. Come on, I'll give you a hand. Oh, okay, good. Well, let's go. Where is he? Upstairs. Hanging in one window at the back. I just turned the lights on and there he was. Oh. When he seen me, he grabbed a stick from the floor and started beating things with oh, it. Oh, fine. And then he broke the window and began to swing on the block and tackle. It runs outside from the roof to the ground. Look, there he is. Yeah, still beating. Hey, Doc, Bobby's going to fling it. There he goes, down the roof. And away. Well... All right, Pop, we better call the Look, cops. Over there, near his empty cage. It's a girl. Blood all over her head. Holy smoke. Merle Brimmer. She did? Yeah. Beat to death with a stick the chimp just threw at us. Then, then you think the monkey did it? I don't know. Maybe yes, maybe no. He's a great imitator, Pop. It could have been somebody else. Not the monkey? Then who? Who else? The monkey's uncle. A Scotchman named Macduff. In just a moment, the second act of Philip Marlowe. But first, Groucho Mar Marx will make another of his famed personal appearances on most of the same CBS stations this Wednesday night. Groucho Marx, whose many activities include emceeing You Bet Your Life, one of the craziest quiz shows on the air. You're cordially invited to hear Groucho Marx every Wednesday on CBS. Now with our star, Gerald Moore, we return to the second act of Philip Marlowe and tonight's story, The Monkey's Uncle. I walked around the body of the girl on the freight house floor. I took a close look at the cage lock. There was no doubt that it had been forced from the outside. The watchman staring down at the body was shaking like a motorcycle with square wheels. So I took him by the arm and walked him down the stairs and outside for some air. It's, it's terrible. I don't know what to do. Nothing like this ever happened here before, and the boss never told me what I'm supposed to do in a case like this. Well, it's I easy. Don't... Just call the police. The police? Yeah. Also the SPCA and Frank Buck. 
Chances are we'll need them all before the night's over. Okay, Mr. Thanks, I should... Hey, who's that getting out of that cab? From the top hat cape and spats, I'd say it was one Lord Ashley Duke, the legal owner of the chimp. Oh, what are you two blighters staring at? I'm out of my way. Uh, just a moment, just a moment before you go inside. I want to talk to you, Lord Ashley Duke. Hmm? You know my name, do you? Well, now, my job, that's interesting. I don't know you, sir. I'll survive. Why'd you come down here tonight? Because I heard that my niece was here, protecting my property. And that's no suitable task for a girl. Not capable to do that sort of thing, you know. It's a man's job, you know. I had a beastly time finding the place, too. You haven't been here before, huh? Oh, yes, yes. A couple of days ago. But that, that, that was in broad daylight. Uh, stand aside, One sir. thing more. Hmm? Why did you slug Wesley McDuff tonight and dump him in a cab? Just who are you, anyway? Private detective Philip Marlowe's the name. Mm, well, sounds British enough. About as British as you are. Hmm? Oh, yeah. And you, I presume, are the watchman. Yes, sir. That's me, your highness. What about Macduff, your highness? There's no choice. The blighter wanted to welch on the transaction we've made. I refused and he threatened me. So I bopped him. And then <laughs> made out he was intoxicated, you know. Packed him off in a cabin. Oh, Nevertheless, when a man sells me a monkey... Right, George, that monkey is mine. And thought that treatment might bring Macduff to his bloody senses. Well, it didn't. It made him tougher. And what's more, the chimpanzee is gone. And Cornelius is gone. Hey, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Come on, Pop. Uh, okay. the way she was when we found her. And that crazy monkey was in here just jumping up and down like he was throwing a fit. It was McTuff. McTuff, that's who it was. That madman. Hurry, mackerel. What was that? I don't know, but I'm going to find out. You stay here. The scream had come from the architectural blunder next door. It was one of those big gingerbread houses left over from the 1800s, and I got there just in time to meet the witch. The scaly front portal was jerked open in front of me, and there she stood. Like a pool cue in high panic, topped by a head of brittle orange hair, half done up tight in curlers, the other half streaming over her face. She clutched frantically at the stained kimono with one hand and me with the other one. Take it easy. Hold it, will you? What's going on? Oh, oh, that face, that awful face. What face? The ugliest thing I ever seen. Oh, protect me. It's a fear. All right, take it easy. Will you calm down and tell me what happened? I was upstairs in my room taking my yeah. hair down. When I happened to look over at the window, and there was that face shoved right up against the glass. Oh, I swear I never seen nothing like that since before I took the cure, mister. All right, now listen, and I... hair all over it, and red eyes and big grinning mouth. What was like one of them giant gorillas they got in the movie. That's Cornelius, all right. Where's the room? Oh, up there at the head of them stairs. Oh. Hey, you ain't going up there and leave me all alone, I... Well, then come along. Corny's a trained chimp. He won't hurt you. Oh, no, not me, brother. I'm getting... Where? Where? Oh, Tell me, is that a passage out there between the houses? Oh, no, no, it's a kind of an airship, only it's closed up at the back. Oh, you mean he can't get through to the alley? Yeah, yeah, that's right. There's no way out of there except the street. All right, come on, let's get outside. We got him cornered. Oh, you got him cornered, baby, mister, not me. I don't want nothing more to do with that ugly puss. The air shaft was a scant 18 inches wide, and as dark and cluttered as the inside of a goat pen with odors to match. I worked my way back as far as the bashful light from the street reached. Oh, be careful in there, mister. And I stopped and listened. But Cornelius was a genius. There wasn't a sound. And I couldn't see my hand in front of my face to say nothing of a black-haired chimpanzee who was no doubt getting a big kick out of the entire procedure. I decided to try psychology on him. So I called in what I hoped was a firm but friendly voice and it got me no place. I groped my way along the wall of the drain pipe and called again. This time shorter on the friendly and longer on the firm, which was a mistake. The drain pipe should have given me a hint, but it didn't. What's the matter? He's gone. Hold on, who? Who, who's gone? That gorilla. Oh. It, it was up on the drain pipe. <clears throat> it hit you on the head with something that <clears throat> ran right past me and oh. got away in a taxi. Oh, come on, let's get out. Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. Wait a minute, baby. I, 
I could have sworn you said the, the monkey took a taxi. Yeah, you did. I watched the whole oh, thing. Oh, my. As soon as it got out in the street, a man in a checkered tan with a crooked stick in his hand came out from between them buildings over there and called it. Uh. They ran up to a taxi. The driver jumped out and they drove away. I seen him. The driver jumped out and they drove away? Yeah. I don't think you took the cure soon enough. Well, I seen something else, too. Uh-huh. A fat boy in a high hat and spats came charging out of the freight house yeah. there... Saw the cab leaving, got in a green coupe that green was parked coupe. in front and took off. Holy after. smoke, that's my car. You, oh, it's gone. How do you like that? Yeah. Now maybe you believe me, huh? Every screwy word, sweetheart. Now look, you didn't hey, happen no. to see... Well, look, that's the cab driver there. Did anybody see what happened? I gotta have a witness. My taxi was hijacked off of me by two crazy guys. One of them looked like an ape, exactly like an ape. Move over, bud. We're on the same raft. My car's gone, too. Tell me what happened, will you? Start at the top. Okay. Tonight I bring this big shot in a high hat down here to the freight house. He hops out, tells me to wait, see? Yeah. So I drive down the block and turn around. I'm I parked right over there trying to grab a quick 40 winks. When up comes this loon. A Scotchman? Yeah, that's him. Yeah. He throws me a fast address and starts getting in, see? I politely tell him the flag is down, but he keeps coming. You see, it's just yeah, like Yeah, yeah, I, I know, it's just like it. Now look, did you ever see this Scotchman before? No, never. I figure maybe he's got a snood full of happy days, nothing more. Uh-huh. So I'm reaching over to block him when a pair of hands that feels like a doormat with muscles mm. grabs me around the neck. I twist around and look, and what do I see? Cornelius. Him I don't know, but an ape man is crawling in my wind. So help me, I'm rubbing noses with a missing link. Yeah, I know. Then what happened? Mac, I jump out of the taxi, and before I know it, the old geezer gives me a claw with his stick, piles in, the next thing my taxi's gone just like that. You gotta believe me, somebody's gotta back me up. Hmm. If I try this on the cops, they'll have me in a padded cell in no time. Well, don't worry about it, fella. Just reach hard for that address the Scotchman gave you. Can you remember it? Oh, sure. Uh, let me see, it was the, uh, the, uh, the Rushmore. Rushmore. Yeah, yeah th- that's a uh, down at the Hills Motel out on Vernon. Yeah. Somewhere around uh, Beverly Boulevard. Ed Nathan's... Oh, you stepped on something here on the sidewalk. Oh, you sure did, cutie. Smashed it, too. It looks like somebody's watch crystal. Sure, ladies' watch crystal... Oh, a nice one. See, it had this hunk of black ribbon with it. Ladies, what? Hey, wait a minute. Let me see that. Sure, here. It's velvet. See? Yeah, yeah, it sure is. That doesn't fit. Not here. No one's been here but the three of us and the chimp. So long, kids. Hey, hey, wait. Where are you I'm going to talk to a liar about a murder. I'll see you later at headquarters, I hope. But what about my time? Talk to the night watchman in the freight house. You'll be good for each other. Two blocks on foot, finding another taxi in 15 minutes, getting from there out to the motel, worrying all the way, because I'd left my gun under the front seat of my car. Business was slow at the Rushmore. The only cabin that showed a light was the last in the rear, next to the alley. I was sure of what I'd find inside, in spite of the fact that neither the stolen cab nor my coupe was any place in sight. When I heard the voices, I decided to bluff it. I went up to the front door and pressed my ear against the flimsy panel. Anyway, a bargain's a bargain, but tough. You'd have done better to stick by it. They'd have stuck by it if ye had your scurvy crook. Ah, don't reach for your chain. It's a little late for that. You're in a real jam now. I'm going to see you blamed for my niece's murder. But I didn't kill her. I pushed her down. I. Yeah. She caught me unlucky Cornelius Cage and tried to stop me. But I didn't kill her. You did that. Yes, yes, but who knows that? Except you and the monk there. And he can't talk. And you won't believe me. Ah, you're daft, man. Why did you do it? Because I had to. Because Merle was bleeding me to death. Every cent I could lay my hands on. I had to buy her silence. I had to pretend to lose thousands in poor investments. Well, Merle got what was coming to her, and you gave me that chance. I found her on the floor where you left her and simply finished the job. Then you ran off and came back in that taxi 15 minutes later, the very spirit of innocence. I saw you. Very well, Lord Ashley Duke. You've got me as a thief, too, so get on with it. Get on with your filthy evil plan. I'm ready. Don't be in a hurry, McDuff. Stay where you are, Ashley. Don't bother turning around. Just drop the gun. Oh, I knew you'd no let me down, laddie. I knew it. Oh, what's this, old boy? It's rather an untimely hit. Skip the accent, Birch. You won't need it where you're going. Drop that gun, I said. Or you'll move. Shoot me with that pipe in your pocket. Marlowe, I've got your gun. Here in my hand, and you know it. Want to bet? Well, with the light out. Yes, Ashley! Oh! 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 It's it's a very strange thing, lad. 
He hit you but once, huh? but there are two lumps on your skull. Do you can this condition? Never mind, skip it. I don't want to talk about it. Oh. Where's Ashley? Trust up there in the corner. He should be coming around soon. You see, Cornelius, as you've no doubt learned, is a great imitator. When he saw Ashley bat you on the head with a gun, yeah. he grabbed McCain, leaped up on the dresser there, and batted Ashley on the head. Oh, no, no. Not with this headache. Hey. Don't tell me I'm indebted to that. Just when I was learning to hate him. Hey, we both are. For our lives. Yeah. But tell me, what does a black velvet ribbon and a, a watch crystal mean? He mumbled that over and over while we, uh, you were out. Oh. Well, that's how I knew Ashley was a liar and a killer. See, the cab driver stepped on a round piece of glass that looked like a watch crystal with a ribbon attached. Uh-huh. Happened on the sidewalk in front of an air shaft. Actually, the... Oh, actually, the glass was a monocle. Oh, dropped by <sighs> Lord Ashley Duke. Oh, Ashley never been at that spot. No. But if Cornelius had, and if Cornelius dropped the monocle, it indicated that Lord Ashley Duke had been someplace with Cornelius early at night, you see? Ah. That could only be the freight house. Yet Ashley claimed he hadn't been there for two days. Oh, I see. Oh, you do. Oh, my head. How about you, Cornelius? <laughs> yeah, well, that's one of the best answers I've had tonight. It didn't take long at police headquarters. Maybe an hour altogether. A killer was locked up for trial, and the key witness ate three erasers, spilled a quart of ink, and broke a window before the homicide boys finally gave up. I watched the phony lord, Ashley Duke, walk down the corridor to his cell. Any connection he had with man was just the category. Then I watched Macduff and company leave, too. A couple of regular guys. A monkey... The monkey's uncle. A genuine old Scott who loved life. And his shuffling friend whose only limitation was his inability to speak. But he communicated all right. In the only language that means anything. Love of one creature for another. Adventures of Philip Marlowe, bringing you Raymond Chandler's most famous character, star Gerald Moore, are produced and directed by Norman MacDonald and are written for radio by Robert Mitchell and Gene Levitt. As a special note of interest, Philip Marlowe fans, you'll be glad to know that Radio and Television Life magazine has this week named Gerald Moore as the best male actor in radio. Featured in our cast were Mary Lansing, John Daner, Tudor Owen, Sam Edwards, Michael Ann Barrett, Harry Bartell, and Junius Matthews. The special music is composed and conducted by Richard Arant. Be sure and be with us again next week when Philip Marlowe says... This time a case-hardened car hop knocked me down a flight of stairs. An honest woman was strangled by a green silk sash. And a simpering dandy was shot to death. All because of a run-of-the-mill traffic accident 500 miles away. hear them all on CBS, and one of the funniest parts of that all comes from the bird brain of a woman, Miss Gracie Allen of Burns and Allen. Top troopers on the American stage for years, top radio stars after that, George and Gracie are now playing a big part in CBS's great Wednesday night lineup. Bing Crosby, Groucho Marx, George and Gracie, Dr. Christian. Join George Burns and Gracie Allen this Wednesday night on most of the same CBS stations. This is Roy Rowan speaking. Now, stay tuned for Pursuit, which follows immediately over most of these same CBS stations. This is CBS, where Burns and Allen are heard every Wednesday night, the Columbia Broadcasting System.
You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Get this and get it straight. Crime is a sucker's road. Those who travel it wind up in the gutter of the prison of the grave. This time a car hop knocked me down a flight of stairs, an honest woman was strangled by a green silk sash, and a simpering dandy was shot to death. All because of a run-of-the-mill accident 500 miles away. It happened like this. From the pen of Raymond Chandler, outstanding author of crime fiction, comes his most famous character in The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. Now, with Gerald Moore, starred as Philip Marlowe, we bring you tonight's exciting story, The Vital Statistic. Hey, boy. Give me a paper, will you? Paper, mister? Yes, sir. What do you like? Reese's comics are classified. How about some news? Star? Here you are. Thank you. Paper! Get out of my way! Hey, wait! Hey, take it easy. Drive away from here. Fast. Oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. What is You've this? You've got to help me. I'm being followed. Well, just a minute, sister. I think the you The light's green. Help... Drive, will you? Hurry, please. Okay, okay. She was streamlined from close-cropped hair, the color of a smoky sunset, to low-heeled slippers brocaded in bronze and in between a dress that conformed as close and smooth as lacquer on a Chinese vase. I made four turns in four blocks and pulled into the curb and stopped. She stabbed a look at me with a pair of sharp, jade green eyes that said life had always been nothing but a calculated risk. Then she stepped out of the car and smiled. You were a big help, brother. Thanks, and goodbye. Uh-uh, not just like that, baby. Come here. I don't like being left out on a limb. Now, look, you did me a favor, okay, but we drop it right here trouble, you wouldn't like it. On the contrary, it's business, like keeping my own nose clean. I'm a private detective, but I didn't issue any invitation for you to jump into my car. A private detective? Yeah, who's chasing you, baby? The law? You can tell me out here on the street or inside over a drink. I'll take the drink. I need it. Maybe I need you, too. This might be a break. I'm Mrs. Terry Labar, and you're, um... Marlowe, Philip Marlowe. Who are you running from, Mrs. Labar? A woman in slacks. I don't know who she is or why she's following me, but every time I look back, she's there. This is the second day. Booth? Yeah, sure. Say, look, why haven't you talked it over with your local policeman? Are you working for me, private detective? That all depends. All right. I'm a merchant, Chinese silks. Not a little shop for 6% profit, but wholesale quick with cash at 40%. Uh-huh. So what's the point? No police. All it takes is a rumor of police, and I'll have doors closed on me from Seattle to Mexico. Good evening. May I get you something? A martini, please. Make it two, waiter. Yes, sir. Right away. This gets us back to the woman in slacks, huh? Yeah. Here, Marlo. Fifty and fifty. Hundred dollars. I want you to locate that woman, find out who she is and why she's after me. Will you? Not without a few more facts. For instance, could she have some connection with your business? No. I have two men working with me. A strong one named Harlan Casey who sees that my cash gets safely to where it's going. And a smart one named Joe Temple who knows what to buy with it. She doesn't belong to either of them. Oh, you sure? Positive. Casey hates all women. Even me, I think. (laughs) And Joe Temple. Well, Joe's a wonderful guy. You hint like a woman falling in love with a fellow named Joe Temple. Care to talk about it further? Why not? Temple and Casey have been in San Francisco all week on a deal. A big deal that'll make or break us. Every cent I have is tied up in it. Oh. Well, what about you and Joe Temple? Yeah. Well, perhaps this will explain. I planned to go away this weekend, but I changed my mind because I didn't want to miss his letters. (laughs) I know it sounds funny, but it's true. Those must be some letters. They are. Like the one I got this morning. It's half business, all right. Complete account of how hard he and Casey worked for me yesterday in San Francisco. But the rest of it is to me. Personally. I don't want to sound old-fashioned, Mrs. Labar, but what about... My husband? Yeah, yeah. That was a mistake I couldn't live with. 
One thing I can't stand, Marlowe, is being lied to. It leaves me vindictive. I'm suing for divorce right now. Vince Labar is a human leech, as cold and spineless and parasitic as the real thing. Okay, but why would your hating your husband put a woman in slacks on your trail? I don't know. All right, Terry, I'll worry about that, too. Any idea where I can start? Just one. I pulled a switch on her yesterday, Marlowe, for about an hour. I trailed her to the corner of Wilshire and La Cienega, then lost her in traffic. There are several dancing schools around there. Is that worth anything? Maybe. What kind of car was she driving? We were both walking. She's tall and brunette. And I've seen toads with nicer eyes. Not enough. Can't guarantee anything. I'll keep my fingers crossed, Marlowe. Here, take the hundred. Oh. Do what you can and report to me at my place, 204 Beechwood Circle. Okay? Pardon, sir. Your drinks. Two martinis? Oh, thanks. Here. Oh, thank you, sir. To your success, private detective. To your health, silk merchant. Drink hearty. Slugging it down was no way to treat a good dry martini, but I figured it was time I was on my way. I drove out to Wilshire and La Cienega and slowed down enough to look at all four corners. There was a drugstore with a special on garbage cans, a drive-in called Scotty's, a branch of the Bank of Los Angeles, and a flying red horse over a mobile gas station. I drove on again when I spotted a pair of black slacks going into a dancing studio a half block down. It looked like a lead. After two hours of staring at knobby knees and shorts and bulging hips and bloomers, all knocking themselves out for a mythical Klieg-lighted future, I was finally convinced that it was a dead end. Now I got back into my car and headed up into the hills for Beechwood Circle in the slim hope that Terry could give me something more to go on. Her house at 204 was low and dainty and half-hidden behind the tough, slender grace of a bamboo grove. The walk was guarded by a white marble lion of Korea and the front door when I finally found it turned out to be a sliding panel in a wall of oriental lattice work. As the door slid open, I was looking down the barrel of a snub-nosed pistol held very steady in the hands of a hard-eyed brunette in a pair of black slacks. You've been looking high and low for me, haven't you, Peeper? Ever since you left that dame. I might have been. You're not the brightest character in the world, in spite of what you and your friends think. I spotted your car when she got in. It wasn't too tough to tag. Where's Terry? Sleeping off a hangover from better days. Skip the chatter. Where is she? Come on in and look. And that's no suggestion, sailor. It's an order. Move. Over there to the top of the stairs. Sure, sure. That's a good smart boy. You're late, you know. I got what I came for, and now I'm in a hurry. Turn around. Look, sister. Shut up! That happy landing! Ten stairs down to the basement. And with a shove reinforced by the 45, I hit all but the first three. By the time I worked all the kinks out and was back upstairs again, she was gone. I started through the house, then slowly from one room to another, turning on lights as I went, looking for what I knew was going to be a very sick client. When I got as far as the study where somebody had gone through the desk drawers with what must have been a snow plow, and I still hadn't found Terry, I got that numb feeling in my stomach. I started out a side door that opened into the patio. But then I heard a whistle from the front walk. I cut back through the house instead and waited near the door. Terry! Hey, Terry, can I come in? It's little Joe, the Frisco kid. <laughs> what happened to your weekend trip, honey? I... Who are you? What do you want? Hiya, Temple. How do you know me? Mrs. Labar hired me today just after she canceled the weekend. She gave me a rundown. She hired you? What do you mean? I'm a private detective named Marlowe. Why would she hire you? Because she was being followed by a brunette in slack. She didn't like it, and that's all the information you're going to get, so relax. You say Terry isn't here? Isn't home? Not so far, no. Come on back here to the study, Temple. I want you to look at something. Somebody's gone through the desk in an awful hurry. Yeah. Yeah, I see what you mean. Maybe you know something about what's missing, huh? You and Mrs. Labar were fairly close, from what I'm told? The letters. The letters are gone. Terry kept my letters in this bottom drawer. Ah. By the way, Temple, where's your sidekick, Harlan Casey? Oh, I don't know. We, we both left San Francisco yesterday. He hates to fly, so I assume he took a train. He ought to be here in L.A. now. I... Well, you don't think Casey's mixed up in this, do you? I don't know. It could be. Vince Labar. That's who it was that got those letters. It was Vince Labar. They were really love letters. The business part was nothing. And Labar is the dog-in-the-manger kind of guy who wants everyone to be unhappy if he that is. That fits. That fits, Temple. With a smart lawyer, your letters to Terry becomes great-A material for a countersuit for divorce. 
Sure, he could make it stick and also get a fat settlement under community property laws. Now, listen, here's what you've Marlo. got. Marlo, Marlo, it's... It's Terry. Terry! Temple, Terry! wait! Terry! Look at her, Marlo. Look at her! She... She's dead. Marlo Matthews, there's a dead one out here. A woman got a pencil? Always. Go ahead, Marlo. I'm at 204 Beechwood Circle. The woman was a client. Circle. Yeah, go on. She was strangled with a green silk sash from my loungy pajamas, Matthews, sometime within the last, uh, I'd say, hour. Yeah. Her name was Terry Labar. Hey, wait, wait. Well, Terry I... Labar, wait a minute, Marlo. Listen, we got a teletype here from a sheriff in Empire, Oregon, come in five minutes ago. So? Oh, wait a minute. Yeah. Says some guy named Jess Freeman from L.A. was killed there this morning in a traffic accident. Was loaded with big dough, but doesn't look the type. And the only other identification on him was a business card from one Terry LaVar. Yeah. You got a helpful answer for that? Wait a minute, wait a minute. Uh, Temple, do you know anything about a man named Jess Freeman? He was killed in Oregon today in a traffic accident and had one of Terry's cards on him. Freeman? Yeah. No, no, I don't remember him. No dice, Matthews. Who are you talking to? Uh, Joe Temple, one of Terry LaVar's associates. He's here. Never heard of Jess Freeman. Yeah. Uh -huh. No, they sent his prince to Washington. A tattoo says he was in the Navy once. They'll pin him down. Now, uh, about out there, any idea who killed him? Yeah, maybe a brunette in slacks. I think I know where to find her. Well, it's dandy. Sit on it till we get there, I'll be right out. Uh, wait a minute, Lieutenant. What? Look, right now it's only a hunch, but if I move fast and quiet, I might be able to develop it into something worthwhile, okay? Uh, okay, but keep in touch, Phil. Yeah, yeah. I still can't believe it about Terry Marlowe. Now, I... look, look. Why don't you just go home and take it easy? I'll tell Lieutenant Matthews where he can find you, huh? Thanks. Uh, 1310 Marlboro Drive. Right. Now, tell me, you know where Vince Labar lives? Yeah, yeah. The Laverne Apartments on Rossmore. Uh -huh. He's got a suite on the top floor, 7A. 7A. And uh, if it's any help, he drives a new green Nash sedan. But I thought you said that it was that brunette who... I did, I did. And if Vince Labar can't lead me to the lady in long pants, I'll eat my shirt... What's more, Matthews will see to it personally. Yes, what do you want? Some quiet conversation with Vince Labar. I'm Philip Marlowe, private detective. Oh, how exciting. Had I known you were coming, I'd have baked the cake. Oh, you're breaking me up. I was hired by your wife tonight. Your wife here. is dead, Labar. She was murdered. Dead? Terry murdered? Yeah. Now, if you don't mind, I'll come in, huh? She was killed because of a packet of letters, Labar. Oh, no. Kind that are a cinch to cause a big stir in anybody's divorce court. Stir big enough to swing a countersuit in your favor. I don't know what you're talking letters, about. Letters, letters, letters. Joe Temple's letters to Terry, the ones you arranged to have stolen tonight. Oh, you must be crazy. Her death wasn't part of the plan, Labar. That was one of those bum deals. A robbery that got out of hand wound up as a murder. Oh, no, wait. Now, where is she, Labar? Who's the brunette in slacks, and where do I find her? You get out of here, or I'll have the police oh, help you. Oh, shut up. <laughs> Not only steal letters, but ashtrays too, huh? Like this coy little number here, a doghouse. Scotty's drive-in, Wilshire and La Cienega. <laughs> okay, LaBar, that's all. Still. Oh, now a gun, huh? <laughs> they say you're yellow, LaBar, but you're not. You're just stupid. There's a terrace outside those doors, Milo. Those with the iron grill. Go on out there. Go on! I don't think Terry's dead, and I don't think she hired you. I think you're working for that lousy louse Joe Temple, and if so, he'll need a battalion of private detectives before I'm through. You're through right now, LeBoy. You're too dumb to see it. Go on. Clear over to the rail. Keep your back to me. It's seven floors down, Milo, to a concrete driveway. Just in case you get jumpy. <laughs> Just a moment, the second act of Philip Marlowe. But first, most people like to know what to expect. But on at least one CBS show, a great part of the fun is in what turns up on the spur of the moment. That show is Groucho Marx's great quiz, You Bet Your Life, heard every Wednesday night on most of the same CBS stations. Now with our star, Gerald Moore, we return to the second act of Philip Marlowe and tonight's story, The Vital Statistics.
moment Vince Labar and the Courage caliber 32 he held in his right hand made it out of the apartment and on the run for the elevator. I kicked through the plate glass door. And I spent the next two minutes alternately swearing, straining, and nicking myself while I played contortionist. In and out of the fancy snake grill work on my wrought iron cage until finally I reached the inside handle. And I was free out and over to the telephone in a big hurry. Because for my money, the icing on Labar's voice left Joe Temple someplace on the short side. What the life insurance people call good risk. Hello? Marlowe Temple, listen hard. Your life's in danger. What? Labar, you had him tagged from the first. He's after those letters, all right. But what about the girl in slacks? Well, I think she might have a connection with a drive-in on Wilshire and La Cienega, a place called Scotty's Inn. I'm going to check it. Now tell me, any word from Terry's muscle man yet? Harlan Casey? Yeah. No, nothing, Marlowe. But look, can I meet you and talk no, to you? No, no. Vince Labar had a gun and a short temper when he left here. I'll make this work any easier. Just stay away from open windows, Temple. I'll call you. Scotty's Inn was eating on the run in the finest California tradition. A mammoth circle of steel under glass painted a dazzling yellow and blue, surrounded by a half a dozen cars containing teenaged couples with smudged lipstick and the giggles. The second after I pulled in and parked, something in slacks with false eyelashes, a waist you could span with a handcuff, and a fixed front-line chorus girl's smile flipped the card marked ginger against my windshield. Handed me a menu that still had the froth from an earlier customer's milkshake in one corner. Well, it be, mister. Just coffee, Ginger. Cream? Uh-uh, information. Oh, it's you again. Huh? Look, baby, what I told you on the phone ten minutes ago still goes, huh? About what? About Rose Facetta, the girl you described. Long black hair, a nice shape, you're infatuated, but you don't know the name and address. So it was nice. I gave the name, told you to look the address up in the phone book, period. Don't be so lazy, baby. Wait a minute, Ginger. I didn't call you before, but that dime cup of coffee will bring you a ten-buck tip if you tell me who did. Hey, you want the guy who called. I don't know any names, but you're not him. Mm. He didn't talk up like you do. But what's all the fuss, baby? Rose Facetta's got a guy. She's spoken for. Besides, a handsome fellow like you should... Sweetheart, sweetheart, this is business, strictly, believe me. Oh. What's the address? Come on. 2428 Havenhurst Drive, bottom floor. Thanks. Here. Here's a ten I promised you. No. Never mind. Hmm? The name was free to him, so why should I charge you? Besides... Besides what? I like the way you said sweetheart. <laughs> Come on back sometime, will you, baby, when you want more than coffee? Okay. When I want more than coffee and less than murder, I will. Stay out of it, Ginger. It was definite double talk, but the effect was what I wanted. Ginger with mouth wide open and staring after me like my ears were on backwards. That way, she might be scared out of making a simple curiosity spike telephone call to the popular Rose Facetta would trumpet my arrival loud, clear, and prematurely. Ten minutes later, I was parked away from number 2824 Havenhurst. As I got out of my car and started toward the place, I found Vince Labar's green sedan on the opposite side of the street and carefully tucked into the shadows of a pair of long-haired pepper trees. It was a good time for me to be careful. So when I knocked on the front door, which showed yellow light at the threshold and was the starting point for something not too close to music, I did it with the butt end of my 38. Ziggy, friend of Ginger's. She asked me to deliver you a message, Rose. Oh, all right. What's the message, friend? Why, you lousy... Don't try it, sunshine. There's no law against shooting ladies or knocking downstairs. Now, back off. Come on, move, but not too far. The moment I want you in between me and Vince Labar. Who? Look, Angel, it's all real plain. Those suitcases behind you there are packed. His car's outside. He's after the letters. Oh, no. Ha-ha! <laughs> there goes Vince now, Buster. Well, Peeper, your opener stinks. Get inside fast. Sure, sure. Any place in particular, sailor? That chair near the desk. Keep your hands in your lap. Okay. If it'll please you, Mr. Detective, I'll be very glad to. After all, you're my guest, and I should be nice to you. Now we talk like a little lady, huh, Rose? Vince Labar picked up the letters from you as scheduled, and you're getting ready to run because you killed Terry, and you'd rather not be around for the question and answer period, right? I didn't kill her. I, I just knocked her down. No. You didn't kill her. You just slowed down her breathing somewhat with a pajama sash. You're wrong, copper. I Skip don't... it. Doesn't add any other way. Go on, answer it. Who is it? Mr. Shirley. What's going on in there, Mr. Setter? No, the jerk who lives in the top half of this place, along with a few thousand Mr. French Shetter, poodles. If you don't open this door, I'm going to call the police. I distinctly heard a noise. And I Come on in, Mr. Shirley. Well, what? Well, what's going on in here? 
Who are you? Never mind that now. Get on the phone. Call the police. Uh, oh. Oh, yes, of course. Yes, certainly. Oh. Operator. Oh, operator. I want the police. 2824 Haven Look, Hero. Yes. You're a little mixed up about some things. Yeah, and you're just the kid to straighten me out. Those letters you've got at Terry's place were written by Joe Temple. Was your boyfriend Vince heading for Temple when he left here? I can't. My heart, sister. Oh. All right, all right. Maybe he was. Now leave me alone. Not quite. Hey, you, Mr. Shirley. Oh, yes? In that desk next to you, there's a gun. Keep it on until the law arrives. Oh. Ladies wanted for murder. Well, yes, but what if she should... Yeah, then shoot, Shirley, fast. Because if you don't, she'll kill you. Tell the cops I'll fill in the blanks later. Oh, now, no, wait, why must you leave? Why don't we both watch you? Because a guy named Joe Temple needs my help a lot more than you do. The home address Temple had given me turned out to be lights in a quiet house on a quiet street named Marlboro. I was there out of my car and running for the front door when they came. <laughs> Chucked my gun out of the holster, got close into the building, and moved up until I was on a line with a pair of half-open patio doors. And I saw something I hadn't expected. On the floor that was littered with a broken lamp, pieces of vase, and overturned furniture was Vince Labar, doubled up, dead. And standing over him, his face the color of soft cement, a 32 dangling in his limp right hand was Joe Temple. When he saw me, he tried to talk, but the words jammed in his throat. Oh, oh. When I stepped into the room, he began to tremble. Oh, I, I shot him. I couldn't help it. He was gonna... Sit down, Temple. Get hold of yourself. You got any brandy around? Over on that table near the phone. No. He was out of his mind, Marlowe. An absolute maniac. He said he was gonna kill me. So you lunged for him. There was a fight and you came up with a gun, huh? Yeah. And when he started for me again, I, I pulled the trigger. And then I did it again. And a third time. Yeah, 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 yeah. Drink this. He brought the letters back, Marlowe. They're inside on the floor where he threw them. He said they didn't mean anything anymore. That he and that girl in the slacks had taken care of Terry. Take it easy, the... Temple, easy. He seemed to go crazy. He said I was a wife stealer, the cause of his trouble, and that I deserved death. Well, that's when I jumped at him. It was terrible, Marlowe. Yeah. Well, between the two of us, we've just about got all the answers, which is usually a good time to call the police, huh? Well, what do you mean, just about got all the answers, Marlowe? What else is there? Jess Freeman. The guy Lieutenant Matthews told us about when we were over at Terry's place, remember? Oh, yes, that traffic crash in Empire, Oregon. But why should that figure in this, Marlowe? It shouldn't, but uh, I think it does. Homicide, Detective Lieutenant Matthews speaking. Marlowe Matthews, uh, another dead one on the Terry Labar case. Oh, no. Yeah, Vince Labar, her husband, he was shot. Uh, who did it, Marlowe, do you know? Yeah, a guy named Joe Temple. It was self-defense. We're coming in, Matthews. I'll take that gun, Temple. You get the letters, let's go. When we got into my car and started downtown, Temple was more relaxed. And he talked easily until we passed Vince Labar's sparkling green sedan parked a block away. Once again, close into the shadows, and once again, empty. Real empty. The sight of it closed him up tight for the rest of the trip. When we walked into police headquarters and through the quarter of a mile of glossy corridor leading to the door marked homicide, he didn't open up any. But it didn't matter, really, because it's police rule never to talk to two men about the same thing at the same time. And I was first. Matthew said hello without shaking hands, waved me into an uncomfortable seat, and then lit his pipe while I brought him up to date. And it was his turn. So Rose Facetta killed Terry Labar so that she could get the letters Joe Temple had written, huh? Mm-hmm. Did this so that her boyfriend, Vince Labar, could raise a lot of fuss in divorce court with the letters, file a countersuit, that kind of stuff? That's the whole deal. Yeah, with Temple making it a doubleheader by shooting Vince when Vince came to kill him. That's it, Matthews. Yeah. If you believe Temple. Huh? And if Temple hadn't slipped. All right, now what are you getting at, Phil? That when I was on the phone with you earlier at night, you asked me if Temple or I knew anything about a Jess Freeman who was killed in a traffic accident in Empire, Oregon? Right, right, but you didn't. No, no. Nor did I mention the town of Empire to Temple. Ooh. Yet a half hour ago, just before I called you, Temple came up with that name. Oh, then Marlowe, you... Oh. Hold my calls, Mooney. Marlowe, you mean I to... mean that Joe Temple killed Terry Labar. Rose just knocked her out and got the letters. Temple strangled her while she was still unconscious. Yeah, but why? Because a guy identified as Jess Freeman got himself killed in a traffic accident. So? A guy who I think was actually Holland Casey, Terry's two-fisted assistant 
who together with Joe Temple was crossing the boss lady. Yeah, but Marlo, and that left look, Temple in a very hot spot. To save himself, he had a kill. Can you prove all this, Marlowe? No. Not a word of it. It's conjecture. But conjecture that fits, Matthews. Yeah. When Temple found Terry unconscious in the garden, that was his chance. He took now, it. Now, look, Phil. Phil, you're guessing at night. Sure, sure I'm guessing. But not in the dark. I know how these guys think and act. I've done too many cases not to know. Now, listen for a minute, will you, Matthews? Phil, I got Will you listen? Facts. All right, okay. Now, look. Temple had to get those letters back, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And the last one in particular, because in the last one, this is the way it's got to figure. He had lied to Terry about being in San Francisco with Casey yesterday, when actually Casey was in Empire, Oregon. Yeah, when Casey was killed up there, the fact was bound to come out. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a good reason. Matthews, will you let me finish, please? All right, finish. Temple knew Terry would find out. He knew that she couldn't stand a liar and a partner who'd double-cross her. Temple knew that she'd get him and ruin him if it took her the rest of her life. So he came back to get the letter before she could read it, but she hadn't left town as planned. Huh? Ironically enough, because she didn't want to miss one of his letters. Yeah, but look, I'm a policeman, Phil. I gotta have facts. All right, all right, you're the policeman. You got labs and technicians. You'll get the facts. And I'll bet you it figures just like I say. Yeah, okay, Phil, okay. And another thing, Matthews. What? When you talk to Temple, who's holding the packet of letters now like a real good boy, yeah. you'll find the last one missing. It'll be in his pocket. I'll bet you on that. Well, that ought to do it, Lieutenant. Yeah, with one exception, Phil. Huh? How did Temple maneuver all this? Getting the letters from Rose Facetta, then setting up that self-defense deal. I don't know. But my guess is that Vince got the letters from Rose just before I arrived at her place. But when he got into his car... Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Temple was waiting, slugged him, drove back to his own house, dropped the body in the living room, shot him when he heard you coming? Something like that, Matthews. Uh -huh, uh -huh. See if you can't get it out that way. Yeah, well, huh? don't worry, Phil. If it's true, we'll get it out. It'll be true. Oh, uh, now would you ask Mr. Temple to come in, please, Mr. Mullow? I'll be glad to, Lieutenant. Uh, say, Temple, Lieutenant, would like to see you. All right, Marlowe. I, I think I can speak coherently now. Good, good. They like to get the facts straight in there. Go ahead. Yes, of course. Good night, Marlowe, and thanks for your help. Oh, good evening, Mr. Temple. Sit down and start talking. I got into my car, the new day was starting to push the black out of the sky. And the early morning air smelled fresh and cool and clean. Yeah, the whole night had been confused and complicated. But I knew that by the time Matthews had finished with Temple, there'd be no questions left unanswered. That would be great, wouldn't it? If everything could be that way. No questions left unanswered. Adventures of Philip Marlowe, bringing you Raymond Chandler's most famous character, star Gerald Moore, are produced and directed by Norman MacDonald and are written for radio by Robert Mitchell and Gene Levitt. Gerald Moore may currently be seen starring in Republic's The Blonde Bandit. Featured in the cast were Charlotte Lawrence, Elliot Reed, Doris Singleton, Georgia Ellis, Bill Lally, and Hugh Thomas. Detective Lieutenant Matthews is played by Larry Dobkin. The special music is composed and conducted by Richard Arant. <laughs> Be sure and be with us again next week when Philip Marlowe says... This time a bride-to-be, a corpse in a plush bungalow and a southern drawl behind a gun all had one thing in common. They moved through the same deep shadow. Remember, you'll find George Burns and Gracie Allen and their good friend Bill Goodwin here on most of these same CBS stations every Wednesday night in the half hour following the Bing Crosby show. This is Roy Rowan speaking. Now stay tuned for Pursuit, which follows immediately. This is CBS, where Burns and Allen are heard every Wednesday night, the Columbia Broadcasting System.
Thanks for joining us for the adventures of Philip Marlowe here at 1001 Radio Crime Solvers. We always appreciate reviews, so if you have a moment, please do drop us a kind review for 1001 Radio Crime Solvers. Come back and join us. We release new episodes every Sunday at noon and Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. Until our next episode, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon.